I've seen a lechuza, I've seen a llorona, but with this stuff, man, I was scared because it's intergalactical and they can control your mind. They can put things up your butt. And so I grabbed my Galaxy and I started taking pictures. They were moving off super fast. You would see it from the north and then it was over here. It was like that movie Independence Day, but you couldn't see it. But they were super active, super hyper, super, super speeds. It was like Mach 11. Just, it was just amazing. Hey everybody, what's up? This is Rojan flying solo this week. I'll get into the reasons behind that in a second. It's not really that big of a deal. But we have returning guest, Michael Grasso, coming back onto the show. Michael was on here about a month ago, and at the time I had Joe from Ozone Nightmare uh, co-hosting with me. Now, Michael um, writes for the blog, wearethemutants.com. That is a blog that covers a lot of the 80s pop culture, nostalgia, really off-the-wall quirky stuff. And when you see it, you go, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember those. I remember that show, etc." Well, it turns out that Michael is also sort of a historian in the 1970s era of UFOs. I don't want to say ufology, but I often do for lack of a better term. Recently, Michael went to a UFO conference for academics and gave a presentation on the documentaries relating to UFOs in the 1970s, and he covered the ones basically all through the 70s, starting the early 70s up until the end of the 70s, right up to right around the time where In Search Of came out, and also uh, some of you people will recall that that was the year, 1977 was the year that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was released, and these documentaries very much affected Steven Spielberg to make that movie. So what we talk about on this show is all of these documentaries, uh, what made them so quirky, what made them so interesting, what was so weird about them, um, how they came about, where you would find these, all of these neat little things, because for us, that was a magical time for UFOs. Ufology hadn't become what it is now. It was kind of in its infancy. You know, that was when Betty and Barney Hill were just giving interviews and the appearance of the Greys was just kind of starting to show up. And it was the birth of the the ancient aliens theory, you know, all of these things. And it was just a really neat, cool conversation. And we kind of go all over the place, but we pretty much stick to these documentaries for the most part. Um, that's pretty much it on that. Now, the reason I'm going solo this week is because Lobo had some obligations with the family and more or less he got stuck going to the fireworks route where he lives. Speaking of fireworks, during this episode, you're going to hear a lot of fireworks going off in the background. Despite my best efforts to try to keep the noise level down, it just didn't work. And the reason why is we recorded this on July 1st. Now, I've got asshole neighbors that decided to make America great again and start celebrating the 4th of July three days early and laid off big huge mortar fireworks no oh, 10 feet from my window so what you hear that sounds like world war three going on in the background is actually fireworks exploding directly over my house and they're huge and they're loud i closed the windows i did the best i could to try to keep the noise out and i pretty much sat in here roasting my butt off but it just couldn't you know <laughs> it is what it is you know there's nothing we could really do about it so you know whatever um now, when I release this show, the Patreons are going to get it first. 
the stuff that we talk about on the show, some of these documentaries um, I'm going to have links to, they're all available on YouTube. All the ones that we talk about are available on YouTube. And when it comes out to the general public in the free show, I'm also going to have links to them on the projectarchivist.com webpage. If you don't feel like going there and checking those out, just go on YouTube and type in 1970s UFO documentary and you will find them. Having said all of that, let's jump into the interview and I will see you guys at the other side. Returning, we have Michael Grasso, and you write for We Are the Mutants, correct? That was the blog. That, that is correct, yes. Good to be and, back. Yeah, you were a lot of fun last time, but you really – I didn't know that you were this deeply ingrained into – I don't want to say ufology. You're kind of – you're more into the historical aspect of this. And you recently went to a conference and gave a uh, – I don't want to say seminar. What was it? Um. A presentation, that'll work. Yeah, a presentation, a paper, yeah. And uh, you did it on – well, first off, what was the conference that you went to? We'll just start from there and go from that direction. Yeah, so about a year ago, I first caught wind of this conference from uh, a podcast partner of mine who's a professor up in Canada. He's on a few you know, different mailing lists, and they had uh, upcoming conferences. He saw one that had UFOs in the title. He says, Mike, you might want to check this out. Um, so it, it occurred at the uh, University of Trent in Peterborough, Ontario. And it was called UFOs, Aliens, and the Academy. It was meant to be an interdisciplinary conference about ufology in sort of academia and sort of taking it as an academic topic. And uh, they got together a very large group of presenters. Um, they were really surprised at the at the uh, response that they got. They got uh, uh, so many uh, submissions for papers that they actually had to turn some down. So it was you know a case of my sort of paper getting accepted along with about uh, 15 others. Hmm. And uh, a keynote speaker uh, who uh, Susan Lefselter, who uh, was recently written a book. Um, what is the title of that? It's called uh, "The Resonance of Unseen Things: Poetics, Power, Captivity, and UFOs in the American Uncanny." And uh, <laughs> long enough, yeah, <laughs> that is your sort of yeah typical uh, academic uh, book. But uh, you know her her uh, her um, uh, keynote speech was really really good. But I, I can wait to talk about that once we start talking about the conference itself. So, well, yeah, go ahead, though. This was more or less a conference for people of the scientific mind or that were involved in science to actually go and dip their toes into this kind of thing without fear of ridicule or persecution. Does that yeah, sound ab about right? Absolutely. I mean, there, there, was, there weren't just scientists there. There were folklorists, historians. Um, actually, a fellow museum person was there talking about local museums that um, uh, use UFO lore to bring in visitors. Um, just a really diverse group of folks, some English professors, some uh, political philosophy um, grad students and uh, recent PhDs, kind of all looking at their disciplines through the lens of UFOs. So did you have – like you had the scientific types there and everything. That's the only way I can really say it. So you had the scientific types there. You had people in academia. Did you have the usual crowd of – I have to be careful how I say this because, well, you know what the hell with it. The, the batshit craziness of ufology. <laughs> did, did you have – you know of the people that I speak of in the uh, mindset of course, yes. So, yeah, and there, were, there were definitely some people there who were attracted by the topic. But um, I would say the majority – I mean they weren't really Q&As because it was a – they had to get a lot of papers out. and It was a one-day conference, so mm -hmm. it was pretty quick. So they didn't really have Q&As. I didn't get to hear what people were thinking about, about stuff. But – uh, most of the folks I talked to who weren't presenting actually were also fellow academics. So 
Um, I think there were some locals who, as I said, were just kind of attracted by the topic, but it didn't have that UFO convention conference feel to it. it definitely so there wasn't people walking around with, you know, gray alien balloons on sticks and stuff like that. And, no, not not so much. Know, it was a little more sedate of, of an event. You didn't have the that, Space yeah. Brothers and stuff like that table who <laughs> set up selling books about that kind of shit and all that, right? No, not, like at that. All. <laughs> so not at all. So what kind of people were here? Did, you know, give us, give us a range of the kind of people that you had there, scientists, doctors. Um, sure. Yeah. Um, it, like I said, it was a mix of, of disciplines. I mean, so you, you had um, presentations, again, given by like people who were focusing in local folklore. You had uh, there was an English, um, I believe, um, grad student there presenting on how we can think of um, extraterrestrial intelligence broadcasts as poetics. So kind of thinking about the most efficient ways to kind of convey messages in a sort of xenolinguistic kind of way. Um, just really, really fascinating conversations. Most of the folks there were either recent PhDs or are in grad school to get their PhD. Um, so it, uh, different levels of academia as well. Some were full professors. Um, and again, just like looking at UFOs from a whole lot of different angles, which, you know, again, for me, like I, I love to approach this topic from a lot of different directions, like you were saying, historically, uh, politically and culturally. And again, like I think the thread that kind of bound everything together was all of these people kind of are into UFOs as kind of a hobby and they don't really have an opportunity to talk about it in their official academic work. So this conference was a great way for people to kind of integrate their interest in the traditions of ufology into their own particular sort of academic areas. Yeah, because there's always that thing where scientists can't be involved in this kind of stuff because they'll lose their sponsorship. They'll be looked down on. Mm -hmm. I know my buddy Tyler is listening to the show right now who is very much into academia. And he's probably getting a good giggle out of this. Um, but <laughs> and um, I, I, guess, I guess the other thing that kind of came up a lot was the the idea that the the search for extra, extraterrestrial intelligence has been going on for basically the past 50, 60 years. And it is a, a very sort of formal uh, academic pursuit. I mean, there are people who talk about what will happen if first contact happens, you know, what kind of messages should we be looking for? The, the pure science of radio astronomy, you know, where should we be looking in the sky? And I tell you, the one touchstone that all of these different people brought on uh, in their presentations, I think three or four presentations mentioned the recent movie Arrival. I don't know if you've talked about oh, that. Oh, yeah. I've, we haven't yeah. talked about it, but I, I've seen it. Yeah, I've talked about yeah. it. Um, and you could see how that would really attract people because it's got that linguistics aspect to it. It's got yeah. sort of the psychology, politics, and, and sort of the whole idea of, you know, what do we do when we encounter a, a species that doesn't communicate like us? See, that's – well, before we go any further on this, I need to ask you this question. Sure. Uh, and there is no wrong answer to this. What is your <laughs> stance on all of this? Do you believe that we actually are being visited by extraterrestrials? Um, are you of the synapsis that, some, some, that this is simply some kind of – consciousness or other thing interacting with us where does your um where do you fall in are you a skeptic where, where do you fall into the grand scheme of things i love how every time i come on the podcast you try to nail me down as to sort of what i believe well, about this stuff. A, first it was esp and now it's well let me it just I, it gives I, people a clearer picture of where you're coming from and sure. you know it, it kind of it's it's not so it's not so that i can criticize you i try to do that with a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> to give people, okay, where is this person? What is their viewpoint sure. on us, and where are they? Where are they firing their shots from, for lack of yeah. a better term? So I mean, we could we can talk about a little bit, sort of my like history with UFOs when we get to talking about my presentation. But like, yeah, no problem. You know, I've had a long history, sort of 
being suffused in this stuff in pop culture and sort of the stuff I I've looked at, you know, since I was a little kid. So I've been around it for a long time. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, in the last like, say, five, 10 years, as I've kind of read deeper and deeper into, you know, some of the let's say some of the narratives that don't fit the sort of standard like the one that was popular in the 80s and 90s, the abduction narrative, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I've, I've really come to be more sort of on the Jacques Vallée side of like, you know, there's a reason why these kind of encounters have believed to have been happening throughout human history. And it's probably something that's a little bit more on the sort of mental and folklore side of things than an actual physical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, I think that the way that human beings interact with these inexplicable happenings is way more interesting than kind of pontificating about what star do these you know aliens come from, what's their propulsion system and all that stuff. I find it interesting that human beings have always had these encounters throughout human recorded history, and that's the part of it that really interests me. So I'm probably more in sort of the ultra-terrestrial, mental, psychological phenomenon side of things. Okay. I don't have I don't have one particular sort of theory that appeals to me the most, but I definitely find it interesting that over the last, again, sort of like two, three decades, a lot of people have started looking at things like uh, receptors in the brain that cause uh, the same kind of hallucinations uh, among different populations of human beings, that they kind of, you know, have the same sort of images of, you know, great big heads looming over them and that sort of thing. And I, I, I you know, the sort of DMT kind of, you know, chain of, of sort of like, you know, common hallucinations among humans. So like that's kind of that's the those are the sort of theories that interest me the most. I don't have a sort of hard and fast belief on whether this is all triggered from outside uh, by some, you know, actual alien sort of, you know, uh, uh, entities that exist outside of our perception. But I do love that sort of, you know, thread of the the valet, John Keel kind of like, you know, there's something there that we don't know what it is. The explanation is not something that science currently can give us a good uh, sort of uh, rational explanation. So you don't actually find yourself sitting in any one camp of anything for the most part is what you're trying to say. I, I don't know. I, I think I travel back. Because that is the correct answer for me. <laughs> that's yeah, that's kind of where I lay on things. It depends and, you know. on who I'm reading. It depends on how I feel that particular day. I, I think I probably don't have a real materialist sort of explanation for a lot of what's going on. And for, as far as, again, sort of common experiences that humans have had throughout human history. Mm-hmm. I, but I do find it interesting that we have had common experiences uh, in many different cultures over many centuries of human civilization. Okay. So getting back to all this stuff. Um, so you went to this conference. How did you, cause you're not, you're not somebody that's really in the UFO field. You're not one of the known names out there. No, you no, know, not really. You're <laughs> primarily known for a WKRP podcast and writing about, um, you know, odd, cool little bits of things from the 1980s, you know? Yeah. Uh, um, and then when you said, oh yeah, I'm going to this UFO conference and I'm doing this paperwork on this, I'm like, this doesn't, I'm what, you know, <laughs> this is not, <laughs> not at all what I expected from you. And then the fact that you got accepted into this. Um, so how did, you know, when you, when you got to this conference and, and you've talked and you've seen all these people and it's all about academia and stuff, your presentation was about uh, documentary films dealing with ufos from the 1970s all through the 70s that's right yeah um and then you sent it to me and it's a whole lot of information i was very surprised by the thoroughness of what you what you've done um because <laughs> i've watched a lot of these documentaries and i ain't gonna lie i've skipped through a lot of them yeah. uh, you know because you know they are dated but 
They're dated. Yeah, they're 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 made on the cheap. They're uh, um, they have a particular aesthetic that again somebody who's maybe in their twenties might look at and kind of scratch their heads and go, "What is the appeal of this?" You know. Well, it was a um, magical time for you. Of the sixties, oh. it's weird because when you go back and you look at, like when you look at the documentaries and ufology, and you look at like YouTube is where all you can find all of these documentaries and stuff that that you talk about on YouTube. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm sure we're going to bring a few of them up. If you go back and look at the ones in the 60s, there is a marked difference in the the where UF where UFO investigation lore or whatever you want to call it is going. Then you hit the 70s, that's very different. The 80s is different, and then when you mm. get into like the 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 knots, you know, the 2000s, that is very very different. Yeah, and you can see the stages of like like in the 60s, it was all like. Little green men, uh, you know, government, uh, it, was, it was a very different thing. And then the 70s come along and that's where it's kind of starting to creep into this visitors amongst us. That's kind of where you see the first appearance of the greys. Yep. Um, uh, you had 1977 when Close Encounters of the First Kind was released. Uh, I believe yeah. that was in November of 1977. Um, and that was that movie was kind of what started really cementing all this stuff, leading the way into the 80s. Um, and then, like, you see communion and stuff like that come out in the mm. 80s. Um, but the 70s, why did you pick that particular era to to look at these documentaries? Yeah, so let's I, start with that. I, I think you nailed it, though. I mean, I think that's that's kind of – it was a very unique time, um, not just in terms of, the like, the state of ufology at that point because it is kind of like on that borderland, like you're saying, between the, you know, sort of early years, 50s and 60s, where you had, like – the 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 competing narratives of like contactees and like air force investigations right so you yeah. have those kind of like those threads are very much the sort of like immediate post war sort of like ufological threads but when you get to the 70s you've got the added sort of aspects of the stuff i talked about on the last podcast fringe science like people really taking things like ESP and, and other sort of beliefs seriously. So as all of a sudden these kind of, for lack of a better word, sort of new age beliefs start to trickle into the mainstream, uh, you got books like Chariots of the Gods, which came out in 68 and became this giant, you know, international best-selling phenomenon and really kind of was the, the starting gun for a lot of the documentaries I'm going to talk about tonight. But like, you know, the 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 belief about UFOs, the belief about UFOs in human history becomes a much more widespread belief, and so all of a sudden there's an audience for these kind of movies uh, and these kind of documentaries to to really flourish. So where were these being shown at? Because mm. television was different back then, where they they they, you, they weren't being made for videotapes because. Yeah, it was kind of a burgeoning technology. So yeah, you know, were they were they being shown on public access? Were they private screening, you know, art house movies or, you know, how well, are these you know, being shown? Yeah. I mean, my research really kind of, you know, pegged this as kind of like a, an era where not only were you able to make UFO documentaries on the cheap and be an independent producer of them. I mean, all over the place, the sort of tyranny of the, of the big sort of studios were starting to fall apart in the seventies, right? People talk about it all the time. They talk about the, the, uh, the outlaw cinema of the 1970s and sort of the beginning of like you know, filmmakers like, um, you know, Scorsese and, and, and Spielberg and Lucas and all these other guys who were in college in the late 60s. But on the on the sort of like UFO, these chintzy UFO documentaries, the same thing was happening is that like people had the ability and the money 
and the venues to be able to like, you know, make these documentaries. And, and TV was a big part of it that the UHF band really opened up in the 1970s. So you had all these little independent stations across the United States just begging for some kind of content to put on. And, you know, that's where we get sort of like the idea of the, you know, the mid 70s UHF station with like Japanese monster movies on it and really cheap mm -hmm. horror movies and stuff like that. Like these UFO documentaries and series like In Search Of found their home in syndication packages that uh, these little stations would buy. So that's where I remember watching In Search Of all the time was, was the absolutely. local UHF stations. It, exactly. Think about it like the Internet where in the early days of the Internet, there wasn't enough bandwidth to have video. But as soon as there's the ability to have video, there's this like ravenous maw looking for content. And that's basically what these new stations were. They weren't going to get the top of the line network programming. They were going to have to go out and find stuff. And yeah, all of these movies were made for film. They were made for the cinema. They were made for being shown in theaters or even drive-ins in a few cases, I think. Um, but once they were out of that first run, where were they going to go? They were going to go to, to again, TV stations in the, in the United States that were craving sort of cheap content. So having said all of that, where do you want to start with this? Where, like, well, let, when you did let's your talk a little bit. Of, where do you want to go? Let's talk a little bit about sort of the first wave of these ones that came out in the 1970s of these UFO documentaries, because I mentioned uh, Von Donneken's uh, Chariots of the Gods a little while ago. And that's really, like I said, that's the wellspring that I think a lot of these documentaries kind of come out of. And there's this guy, creator of In Search Of, actually, this guy, Alan Landsberg, who is a really, really interesting uh, dude. Um, so he was kind of a, you know, Korean War vet. He worked in like the communications office in the U.S. Army. And like a lot of people who got their sort of, you know, media training in the Army, he went in and started, you know, working in, you know, producing, you know, documentaries. And uh, he actually did a documentary on the thousand days of JFK's uh, presidency uh, that won a bunch of awards. And so he read... Uh, von Daniken in the late 60s and was com completely taken by this idea of ancient astronauts visiting us. And so what he did is he took the West German version of this uh, movie adaptation of Chariots of the Gods and redubbed it, re-edited it for American cinema and TV audiences. And it was called In Search of Ancient Astronauts and featured none other than Twilight Zone host Rod Serling as the narrator. And uh, Rod Serling is going to come up a lot tonight because he not only narrated this series of documentaries, but a bunch of others. And from what I can tell, was really, really interested in these topics in the 70s right before he died as well. Mm -hmm. So Landsberg put out In Search of Ancient Astronauts, In Search of Ancient Mysteries, both in 1973. The Mysteries was more about sort of like, you know, inexplicable out of place artifacts and things like that. But they were, you know, they're very much in the same kind of, you know vein of topics and then he did another one called the outer space connection in 75 so obviously he was having a lot of success with these he would go on landsberg to create in search of like i said which i think for a lot of people our age was a real like that was the foundational yeah. yeah foundational moment and you know again they covered a lot of different topics on in search of you can see it in like the opening credits they talk about you know special phenomenon and strange creatures and all that kind of stuff they didn't just cover ufos but Obviously, that was kind of the bread and butter was this sort of like idea that there were ancient visitors and they were still coming to visit us. And, well, and it was the first commercially available 40 in show. You absolutely. Know, if you were the yeah. guy that was into that weird stuff, the closest you really got was, you know, you probably watched 
Doctor Who where you could find it. You probably watched a lot of uh, reruns of The Twilight Zone and Outer yeah. Limits and stuff like that because mm-hmm. that was really the closest you could get to that kind of thing if you were the, you know, the Fordian kind of nerd. And mm-hmm. then In Search of comes along and it's like, whoa, I can watch a show about, you know, this cool legend about Bigfoot or Betty and Barney uh, Hill or. Or where did Amelia Earhart go? When yeah, she in the pyramids you know? and, you know, all of these different things. And, you, you know, you get listening to Leonard Nimoy sit and narrate this stuff to you. I mean, you that's know? the thing, right? Like Nimoy makes that show. I mean, for yeah, everyone does, who yeah. grew up in that era, you watch Star Trek reruns on UHF stations. Yeah, exactly. And then- yep. See Nimoy come out. Now, of course, he only chose Leonard Nimoy because Rod Serling had passed away. Mm-hmm. And he was ready to kind of give him the the hosting duties for this new series. But he passed away in, I think, 75 or 76 before the show debuted. But, you know, again, Nimoy steps in and really becomes like the voice of that show. And again, like, how does In Search Of differ from something like Ancient Aliens today? Well, in In Search Of, you've got they're able to send Nimoy to all these places, right? Like Easter Island and like, you know, all over the world, like they had the cheesy recreations and the, you know, artist renderings and all the other stuff that comes up in these seventies documentaries. But I don't know. It just felt like people actually spent some time putting together these episodes and mm-hmm. putting together research for them. And really, you know, well, it wasn't as recycled as stuff back then either. A lot of the stuff exactly. that you were hearing was, it was very fresh. Like nowadays when you watch H and aliens and stuff like that, it's, it really feels like a lot of times they're grasping for straws to give mm-hmm. you something new because the the average Fordian is a lot more adept and knows a lot more of the stuff. Like when we were younger watching In Search Of, you know, the only way we could consume this stuff was by going to the library and checking out really off-the-wall books, and, and, and that was really about it. And then or maybe you get of, the Time Life Mysteries of the Unknown books off yeah, the TV. Some, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Something like that, you know, And because really Coast to Coast wasn't around back then, I don't think. Right. And, you know, it was it was just one of those, you know, you'd you'd see really, you know, like psychic phenomena movies and stuff like that or, you know, just off the wall stuff. But when In Search of came along, it was like, whoa, you know, this is I'm into this stuff. And a lot of the stuff you genuinely hadn't heard before. Yeah. So that was like, again, that was the gateway to get into this stuff. And then, you know, the, again, you bring up the documentaries and everything. Yeah. And I think that's really what it, like, you know, when you mentioned Close Encounters earlier, like, obviously, that was also a really important experience for me as well. But like, that's a movie. Mm-hmm. It's a Spielberg movie. It's it's fiction, and y- you you are automatically kind of separated from what's going on on the screen because you're looking at it as entertainment. Now it contains tons and tons of stuff that not only came before in ufology, but would also like Close Encounters. I think perpetuated a lot of stuff that we kind of see come up in the '80s, like you mentioned earlier. But like yeah. with a documentary, there's this layer of like authority and authenticity to the idea of watching a you know, nominally factual documentary on a topic. So all of a sudden, you're not watching entertainment. You're watching news. You're watching fact. You're watching, you know, the the format of the documentary gives this and lends this some extra authority that something like, um, you know, a, a, a fiction movie like Close Encounters or a cartoon or something else won't give you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the reasons why these documentaries are so unique is because they lived in this world where, like even the documentary itself was kind of a new format in the 1970s. I mean, again, it was it was coming out of that sort of new wave of of, of American filmmakers. The idea that you could put together a feature documentary and sell it for uh, exposure in in movie theaters or on TV. And so the idea that you know these topics were taken seriously, researched, presented in a way, in some cases sensationalistic, in some cases not, was new. And I think that that really drew in a lot of uh, viewers. And um, was really part of a kind of an overall media explosion of UFOs in the 1970s, because not only did you have movies like these, but you had 
tabloid journalism, you had paperback books, you had all kinds of other venues for a, a public that was really hungry for this kind of content. Mm-hmm. Well, your first one you talk about here is In Search of Ancient Astronauts, which uh, was 1973. Yeah. So I guess let's start with that one. And you, you, who was that that made that one again? That, that was Alan Landsberg kind of taking the footage from this West German uh, documentary based on the Von Daniken book and making it into an American presentation, essentially. That's right. You said that already. Correct. Yeah. And, um, and, and again, it kind of had the typical sort of chariots of the gods stuff about like, how do we explain how these things were built? How do we explain this carving on this particular sort of Mayan temple? And like, you know, going through it, I mean, again, it's very familiar to those of us who live in a world where, you know, we can turn on History Channel any time of day and get ancient aliens. But back then, this set of topics, I mean, Von Daniken wasn't the first person to kind of posit all this stuff. Uh, there were lots of people who were talking about sort of, you know, ancient visitors of one kind or another using you know, biblical passages to explain how, you know, we were visited and, and our DNA messed with and all that stuff. But like Von Daniken's book was such a huge hit and again, hit at just the right time as it came out in 68 and people were starting to kind of open their minds to these kind of Aquarian ideas. Um, Landsberg was just really canny, you know, not only did he read the book and really enjoy it, but he said, well, I got to bring this over to the States because if it's, if it's a hit in West Germany, it was actually nominated for an Oscar the original West German version mm-hmm. uh, for best documentary, which, you know, I, I looked through all these movies and I'm finding like a bunch of them were actually nominated for Oscars and Golden Globes, which again, to our sort of modern eyes seems kind of strange. But again, this is what I'm t- telling you about sort of like the mainstream appeal of these movies was, it was definitely there. So Landsberg went on to like, you know, after doing these, these series, uh, these movies, and then in search of, uh, he would do a lot of like, uh, kind of on the cheap network programming, like you know, like those TV movies of the week that had like an issue, like alcoholism or like you know domestic abuse or something like that. And he also did um, uh, he did the show um, uh, That's Incredible that was on ABC that was sort of like one of those proto reality shows that had people who had you know unusual talents and stuff like that. Another thing that I've noticed with these, and you, I believe you bring it up in in, in your notes, is that these shows all were the first ones to use the really wanky synthesizers. Like oh, every time God. I watch one of these, <laughs> I, I don't smoke weed, but I kind of would be, I, I'm kind of like, wow, I wonder what this would be like if I were sitting here smoking a joint right now, you know, cause yeah. you know, I mean, our parents used to get, you know, my, my mom used to get high all the time and weed and stuff. And I would, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, I wonder if my mom, you know, if she would enjoy this when she got bombed on weed, because they always <laughs> had like the, we, 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 you know, the, the, I, they're not even they're not even, I don't even want to call him Pink Floyd because they're really cheesy you know they're just yeah. like but well th- th- this is I you know again when I when I did this paper my idea was to kind of like identify what makes these so special like why does somebody between the ages of like 35 and 45 look back on these with such fondness and that synthesizer soundtrack is so essential and so common in all of these yeah so there's a few threads you know kind of feeding into this People were already working with synthesizers in the 1960s, those big patch ones with like yeah. all the wires and stuff. And they, these were people on the cutting edge of like music. They were, you know, they were like uh, classical composers, like, you know, conservatory educated uh, folks who wanted to work with the latest in technology like anybody else would today with, you know, any kind of musical sort of instrumentation. Um and so, but as it filtered out of the conservatories and into like the pop sphere in the late sixties, early seventies, you have, you know, like you have like Kraftwerk and like other like early synthesizer bands, a, a lot of overlap became, uh, apparent with 
the idea that this is this is a futuristic instrument. And so people who were into doing stuff like very early New Age and like space rock and like other genres like that in the early 70s, it automatically became associated with this idea of space exploration, of, as you say, being spaced out. Like, you know, there, there's a whole thread of like futuristic and space associations that people were already making with the synthesizer in the late 60s and early 70s. And so it's logical at that point and also kind of cheap because you don't have to hire an orchestra, right? You can have an orchestra right there in a computer and right there in a exactly. box. Exactly. Just make some weird you know? noises for me. Okay, this sounds spacey. This sounds like some kind of alien strange computer or something. I didn't really notice that until I actually started watching these. It was that and the like the the rendered drawings that you see in all of them. You've always got yes. like the giant alien head with the black eyes and they're always wearing like full body suits yeah which you've got I, a picture of in one of your presentations you see a <laughs> lot of that over and over again in a lot of these yeah um, the artist rendering is sort of yeah. like the cheapest way to because you know you can do recreations and a lot of these documentaries do do like the reconstructions and they do look really cheesy and everything but it's so much cheaper not to hire uh effects artists actors <laughs> set dressers and just have somebody that you know who's an artist Make a nice crude sketch of, you know, three grays trying to zap Tra Travis Walton. Or even still, like back that. then, it still scared the hell out of you, you know, because I, I remember seeing They're some of those when I was a kid and going, wow, this is freaky as shit. <laughs> exactly. They're super uncanny because not only are they kind of like really crude, but they're warped by even back when you would watch them on UHF. The film stock was not expensive. It was cheap film stock. Mm -hmm. And so the the copies that made their ways out to these little UHF stations were probably really, really kind of like warped and like, again, like the, the cameras they were using weren't exactly the best and top of the line. So you have all these like little snaps, little warps in the in the film. Like it all adds up to a really uncanny experience. It doubles the uncanniness because the topic is uncanny, right? It's like aliens mm – -hmm you know, abducting people, but the, but the medium itself is kind of weird and uncanny and broken. And so when you're six years old and you're catching this on the Saturday afternoon TV, yeah, you're going to be freaked the hell out. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you're like, cause I remember finally laying in my room at night going, I wonder if these things are going to come and get me because it wasn't <laughs> so much watching the monster movies that freaked. Cause again, you're watching a movie, you're watching movie, something exactly. sci-fi when you're watching these documentaries and the way that they present the stuff, because usually how they worked is you would have a person that was being interviewed on a couch or whatever, yeah. you know, and it would say at the bottom of the screen, um, blah, 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 Colonel for U.S. Air Force. And the guy yes. would tell you a story and then it would, you know, <laughs> and then it would flash to like a picture of a UFO being a disc or because back then the the triangle UFOs weren't really the thing back then. It was um, not, not it was primarily. Yeah, yeah. yeah, the discs were primarily the big thing back then. And like, if you, like again, the Betty Hill thing is the is the best example of it because you would have a you'd have the interview with Betty Hill, and then you would flash to a picture of like it would Ugh. be like a car on a road with like a light, just a light shining on the car, you yeah. know, with some speed with some crazy synthesizer in the background. <laughs> Pardon my effects, people. I'm sorry. It, it, it's like any. It, it, this is all stereotypical. Any pick pick a 1970s UFO documentary, and you've basically got it. Right yeah. there, you know, they were kind of like spaghetti westerns. They just, yeah, they just cranked yes, them up. That's a, really, but, that's a really good parallel. I mean, that that makes a lot of sense because, again, what were those Italian directors doing? They were working on a shoestring. Mm -hmm. They were trying to make the the scrublands of like Sicily look like Arizona. Like it, it was all done on the cheap and on the fly. And that's a big part of what you're talking about here is that aesthetic 
that that sort of cheap aesthetic that makes things feel a little bit weirder. Well, let me ask um, you this real quick then. Um, yeah. When did In Search of start? When did it? What was In Search of air date? Do you remember when did that? It was seventy seven to eighty two. So it okay. was right around the end of this period. But again, it was it still that, borrowed that, so much of it from it though. <laughs> yes, exactly. They were using all of the aesthetic sort of touchstones that Landsberg had done earlier in the seventies, and also. This is right before the explosion of cable television. So when cable comes along, things get a little slicker. They get a little bit more modern. Like you could picture a, a series like In Search Of uh, that would air on HBO in the mid-80s would be a lot more like they'd have, you know, snazzy intros with like neon colors and stuff like that. And it wouldn't be as sort of like homemade looking as In Search Of itself was. Well, In Search so Of, like, though, they would actually go out like these these UFO documentaries. They often wouldn't go to on location very much. Right. And usually the on location footage was a picture like the on location. Yeah. Uh, I believe it was from. Uh, oh, gosh. I can't remember which one it was now. Um UFOs are real, I believe it was. Yeah. They're interviewing the guy about actual UFO landing sites, and it's a picture of it says UFO landing site, and it's a black and white picture with something that looks like smoke on the ground. Yeah, yeah, you know, burned ground, right? Yeah, that yeah. was their on location. Whereas in search of, they actually would go to the pyramids, and you would see Leonard Nimoy walking through with the porn mustache, kind of <laughs> narrating with the big pillar columns behind him, or what have you, or like right. you said, Easter Island or whatever. They would actually. But it's still they would take the on location aesthetic and they would still add the you know the weird synthesizers and stuff like that. That yeah. was like the go to thing. Uh, see if if we were able to go back in time, we could make such a kick ass document. You know, we <laughs> <laughs> would just use the best of both worlds. Exactly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. So well, I mean, that's the thing. I, I think that once In Search of came along, Landsberg had a bit of a, a better reputation. He had a little more money. He had a little bit more support uh, financially. But yeah, like when you talk about UFOs are real, which came out in 79, like that thing was made by Ed Hunt, who was just a B-movie science fiction director, mm -hmm. who, again, was really personally into UFO lore. And um, he did a movie called uh, Starship Invasion a couple of years before UFOs are real came out. Um, really cheesy, you know, just like a, a, a late 70s drive-in movie kind of thing. But but he integrated all kinds of tiny little aspects of real UFO lore, the abduction narrative, uh, the idea of multiple races being out there competing over the earth, you know, all that stuff that was really um, fashionable in the 70s. And he put it into that science fiction movie in 77. And so it was very obvious if you were watching it and you were a UFO buff, you'd be able to I, you know, identify those you know, sort of ideas that were floating around in UFO lore at that time. But UFOs are real in 79. That was the one that I watched over and over again as a kid. It was on seemingly every three months on the local UHF station here in Boston in the early 80s. And I, I got to, uh, to the point where I almost had it memorized. It was on so much. And you're right. P Betty and Barney Hill feature. Uh, well, B Barney Hill had passed away by that point. But Betty Hill is interviewed in that movie. Um, it, it's a very early incident instance of the of the sort of modern Roswell myth because it was around that time that Stanton Friedman and others were starting to kind of dig up the the Roswell story from 47 and we're starting to kind of construct the myth that became very common in the 80s and 90s with Roswell and UFOs are real I think you probably won't find uh, aside from the books that were being written at that time you won't find a depiction in media much earlier than 79 in that film. I was going to say, because from what I remember, that was Betty Hill's biggest like on-screen interview to that point, because usually they were just, yes. I believe, like news snippet kind of things to that point. And right. that was the first real full-form interview of her 
where I yeah. think, did she bring out part of her the her dress on that one as well? I, I don't remember. Yeah, now. yeah. And, and they talk like about a, her star map, and you know, yep. They interview her in the house, and she's got a little bust of a UFO head that was sculpted when she went under um, for the interrupted journey. The uh, the book that came out in the late '60s about their experience. Um, also, the uh, Andreasen affair uh, person is also in that um, UFOs are real um, movie. And you're right; they also always have a lot of people from. The military, because again, there's that thread from the 60s we were talking about with Project Blue Book and everything. Yeah, yeah. But what what do all of these doctors and Air Force colonels and everything else? Again, you 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 said it earlier. I wanted to I wanted to come back to it. You said you know you watch it and you see all these people very seriously talking about UFOs. These are authority figures. And back in the day when you and I were kids, you know, we were brought up to like revere like authority figures, cops and the military and everybody else like Jimmy Carter even appears in UFOs are real as a, you know, still image, but they talk about his UFO sighting back in uh, Georgia in the early seventies. Yeah. And like, so like if the president saw a UFO, <laughs> it's gotta be real, right? Like if this, if this air force colonel is telling you he's seen stuff he can't understand, if this NASA astronaut who was on the Apollo mission is telling you he saw something like well, you were also coming out of the cusp of project blue book because project blue book was something that was more or less created to explain away UFOs for the most part. Yeah. And to backtrack a little bit, that's one of the parallels you see, like you can always tell. You can look back at the history of ufology again by these documentaries and what was going on in culture at the time. When you look at 1960s UFO documentaries, you also have um, Robot Monster and movies like that. Like they would show like us going to other planets. It was a rocket ship kind of like landing on a planet, yeah. you know, with fins and stuff. And the government in those movies kind of mirrors what the government was saying during, you know, they, they're kind of a reflection of one another. And then when yeah. you move into the seventies, again, you have that same kind of effect going into a different direction. Cause we had just come out of project blue book. Things were starting to change. You know, it was, it was a magical time for, it was the birth of ufology, but it was also a magical time for it because yeah. Things weren't as clogged down with bullshit like they are now. That stuff was yes. all beginning to be born. Like the Betty and Barney Hill movie, to my knowledge, and I know I'm probably going to have people out there that are going to instantly jump on me if I'm wrong. I believe that was the first real showing of of hypnotic regression yeah, in, in absolutely. these, in these uh, movies. Because that hypnotic regression become another thing in ufology. That that was – it all you know stemmed from, from there. This is when you started seeing this stuff in the 70s. No, you're absolutely right. I mean that – and you're right. Like like I said, things like, uh, things like hypnosis, things like Roswell, all the things that become, again, standard parts of the, the UFO story in the 1980s all have their roots not just in the 70s but in these documentaries in the yes. 70s. And, and again, yeah. like – you know, there are books that were coming out, but like again, the 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 audience for a book and the audience for a film, let's be honest, even in the seventies, more people were watching TV than were reading books, even amongst the people who were real UFO dev devotees. Yeah. Like these books weren't easy to find necessarily. Again, some of them were bestsellers like Chariots of the Gods, but like, you know, I don't think you could probably go into an average bookstore in nineteen seventy seven um, and find a copy of Interrupted Journey or the Andreasen Affair. You know what I mean? No, I, but I do. I, there were books out there, but they were kind of hokey. And I remember going into the library and asking for them and being getting some really weird looks. Oh. You know, because again, <laughs> back then when I, when I was a kid, I was really into 40 and stuff from very young for various mm -hmm. reasons. Um, it, it, the Chariots Chariots of the Gods was out there and there's a few other ones. But your, your local library and your school library really didn't have – 
a lot of the stuff. You had to dig to find this stuff. And what was yeah. out there was, again, kind of homogenized and processed. Like, you could read two UFO books, and you would know pretty much what was out there, you know, for the most part. Like, you really had to dig for the good stuff for the yeah. most part, you know. And this is where the folklore aspect of this comes in, because I mentioned tabloids a little earlier. I think that's a big way that a lot of people got their UFO stories back then, because – Again, before the 1980s, before the Inquirer became like a gossip magazine that Weekly really World was news. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Weekly World News, again, they, they became a joke in the 80s and 90s and became overtly jokey. But in the 70s, they were tilling the same fields as the Inquirer and some of these other weekly supermarket tabloids. And that in the 70s, these tabloids didn't really bother with like tales of glamour and excess and, and celebrities. They were really concerned with like like uh, miracle cures, like that was a big part of like every single one of these magazines had like a cancer desk and the, the latest miraculous cancer cure that somebody had either cooked up in a lab or had found by praying to an idol somewhere or something like that or an icon or something like, but UFOs were a big part of that, you know, sort of like the idea that, that the front page of these uh, tabloid, uh, supermarket tabloids would have UFO stories on them. And again, that's, you know, that's a that's a buck fifty in your local supermarket, you know, checkout aisle. And everybody sees them every day. They had huge, huge circulations. And so, like, even if you couldn't find a book, you could always grab one of these tabloids or see one of these documentaries on TV. And, you know, they're, they're just so much more accessible. And again, the demand was there. The, in 1978, the largest percentage of Americans believed that UFOs are real at any point during the Cold War period. That was the peak. That was the moment where where you had an audience that could buy this media, that could really get into this media, and and they were they were out there and and they were demanding more of it, and that's why all these documentaries. It's it's a simple question of economic supply and demand ultimately, and the demand was high. Well, let's go and talk about UFOs, past, present, and future, and UFOs that has begun, which were essentially the same movie that was re-released in. It was originally released in 1974. Yeah. And that was the one where um, Rod Sterling was the narrator for it. Another another one. Yeah, he was he was I have to imagine that he, he was a believer at this point at this point late in his life. He he at least he had interest in the topic. And, you know, you think back to the Twilight Zone again, another huge cultural touchstone in America in the in the post-war period like the early 60s. There was nothing else on TV like the Twilight Zone. Right. It was so different, so subversive. Uh, Serling himself was just like. He was very much his own man. He was very much a, a, a he cut a very unique figure and he touched on issues in the Twilight Zone that you couldn't touch any other way on TV. Another similarity between Twilight Zone and Star Trek is that they both covered social issues in kind of oblique science fiction ways that, again, like the powers that be really didn't want to cover in any kind of uh, literal, realistic way. Right. So. Mm -hmm. Serling himself, you know, a really, really interesting guy, another guy who came out of that sort of World War II period and really came out of it a changed man. And, you know, the, did he do all these for a paycheck? I'm sure he did. I'm sure that that was a big part of why he did a, a lot of these narrations and hosted a lot of these. Documents. Well, he's also a perfect fit for it because he was just such an odd guy. Yes. You know, he. The, I mean, you see him and he comes with all of these like expectations about what you're about to see. Right. Yeah. It'd be like putting Jack Webb from Dragnet in a like documentary about crime. Like 
you know what you're going to get when you see this guy's face and hear his very distinctive exactly, voice. Exactly, exactly. You know? Yeah, he was Rod Sterling was very, very distinct. Nobody else talked like him. Nobody else had his mannerisms. He yes. was very odd. And then I believe after, not far after, you had the Outer Limits. Now, the Outer Limits did very much t- touch more on UFOs and things like that. Yes. But uh, when Sterling did uh, UFOs Past, Present, and Future – they came back out with it and re-released it in 1979, but they did more narration and they added more stuff to it. Yes. So why was there the re-release? Is it just because of the interest or they said, hey, we can it, go back on touch on this and again? Or you know, It was literally because of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. That's it was what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> if you watch the 79 remake, the font that they use for UFOs that has begun is the exact same font as the Close Encounters font. Listen, nobody ever said that these documentaries were in any way not like – opportunistic <laughs> well i make the and, comparison like you when this stuff was all when after close encounters came out that was when really because close encounters was based it was it was hollywood but he based a lot of that stuff on different things that actually happened oh yeah or reportedly happened like the the ufo chase with the cars chasing the ufos and stuff that and, was a uh, big thing that's you know that the, happened a couple of times reportedly was it flight 13 out of uh florida the the uh the, bermuda, the early bermuda triangle case where the uh the training flight disappeared like that's literally in close encounters yeah all of the, that um, movie had all these different things that he kind of cleverly all tied together into this movie and yeah. then um but what you had going on at the time is because that movie broke and it freaked everybody out again that was pretty much you know because of betty and barney hill that was when the Grays had their first commercial debut. Boom, Grays. Yes. These are the aliens. And it freaked everybody out. Yes. It, I mean, when you're seeing this on the giant, like I remember seeing it out at the drive and I still love the movie. I, I watch it every couple of years again. Yeah, absolutely. But I very vividly remember the really long, tall, skinny alien coming oh. out of the ship and there's God. fireworks going off. Um, <laughs> but I remember that tall, skinny alien coming out and you're going, what the hell is that? Oh, frightening. But if you're, you're five, six years old, like oh, that yeah. is one of my earliest memories of being absolutely just shit scared of something on the big yeah, screen. Yeah, like when like, the little boy gets abducted and the aliens, the, the craft is oh, over the house and like he's getting sucked into, was, you know. That kid was my age, basically, yeah. when I saw the movie for the first time. And of course, it's, it's just horrifying. Um, and yeah, like Spielberg's a master. Nobody's denying that Spielberg is, you know, he he knows how to like, like emotionally like like pluck the right string to like get people to react he, he's great at that well he's also and, very much a believer in it as well like that was yes he, he yes. put a lot of heart to that movie but where yes. i was going with it is the parallels that i make with that is is that nowadays like when you when something break when something is shown on regular news channels and there's ufos and stuff i've made reference to this on our last episode they always play the x-files music <laughs> well back in the 70s when yes. ufo stuff was going on it was like hmm well close encounters was big let's knock off close encounters a little because that's something that everybody relates to yeah you know absolutely. and so everybody was kind of like when the news story came up they'd always like have something to do with close encounters or something like that because it was it was in the zeitgeist for the most part. I guess that's the only way I can put it. In yeah, the same no, way now that when nowadays people are like, okay, God, another UFO thing on the news with X Files music, and people are kind of getting tired of it now, but it's that same idea. Mm-hmm. But uh, absolutely, going back to uh, past, present, and future, and it has begun when they re-released it in '79. How much more did they put into it? How much more did they add to it? Or you know, was yeah. it still that same cheesy aesthetic, or was it just a mix of the two? Well, they, they wanted to update it a little bit from what I could t- tell from like, I, I, you know, it's tough to find the 75 version online. The 79 version is out there. So 
obviously Sterling had died in between. So if they wanted to put new um, new footage and new interviews and new, uh, new new sort of like content in there, they needed some new people to actually do the introductions. So if you watch the 79 version on YouTube, uh, you'll see a lot of Jacques Vallée, um, who again, like he was a consultant for Close Encounters. The character Lacombe is partially based on him. You know, this French UFO investigator that goes around uh, with his interpreter. Like... Who was also it, based off the character in, in Close Encounters. They based a character off of him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so so what, you've, what you've got here is like they've got all these touchstones. Now, I love Jacques Vallée. I'm a huge fan of his. I'm hoping at some point I get to come back on the podcast and talk about his diaries. But if you watch him in this 79 you know, documentary, he doesn't look super comfortable. He doesn't look like this is what he was born to do. Because you got to remember, at this point in the 70s, He's written tons of UFO books, but his real occupation is computer programmer. Like, that's what he does. And so, like, he's not really, like, he's not media savvy. He's not, like, a like a like he's not Serling. He's definitely not Serling. So, mm-hmm. it's, like, it's a little bit of a different vibe, that 79 version. And, it, and again, like, they wanted to update it, but to be honest, the, the bits that they ended up adding, I think, kind of, like, they made it feel a little more patchwork. And I talked about that in my presentation. It's, like, when you watch something... Uh, in 1975 with Rod Serling giving you all this great narration and then you see it pop on t- up on TV four years later with completely different parts. It's like, did I watch that movie? Is this the same movie? And this is what I mean about them kind of like cobbling together um, documentaries sometimes from bits and pieces of other documentaries. Again, doing things as as sort of inexpensively and sort of um, – just as easily as they possibly could to get the product out there. Um, but I, I mean, that one's a real, that one's worth watching because it does kind of give you a, a, a view of a few cases that maybe haven't made it down to us uh, through the years in UFO lore. Um, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. So I'm going to ask you, you got a point in here where you talk about why the fascination, what yeah. is the fascination with all of these seventies documentaries? You know, why, well, yeah. why the attraction to them? Well, I mean, we've talked about it a little bit. They, they really only could have occurred at this particular point in history uh, because of all of the different aspects we've talked about, um, uh, economic, uh, social, um, just the, the media landscape at the time was just perfectly aligned so that these kind of inexpensively produced documentaries could appear on TV and actually get an audience. Again, if you're like me, you grew up in a, in a fairly major media market. What did that mean? seven or eight TV channels, you know what I mean? Like three network channels, maybe four or five on the UHF band. So you didn't have a lot of choice when it came to watching TV pre-cable. So it, they only could have happened at this point in, in, in sort of media history. And I think the other part is the stuff we've talked about with the uncanniness. Mm-hmm. They're just plain weird. <coughs> Pardon me. They, they just seem to kind of as pieces of media and the topic and the subject matter makes them into just a very strange experience all around. So moving on from there, you got a part in here where you talk about the legality of these, like how pretty much they're, they're pretty much open domain nowadays, I would assume. Correct. Well, I mean, I hope so. Cause I sample the shit out of them for my show. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, this, this is the thing they've lived on because of that appeal for people in our age group. A ton of them are on YouTube. And again, like I have to wonder, are these like actually taped off of TV in the 70s and 80s? Are they copies that people had on film that they transferred into a digital format? I noticed that the copy of UFOs are real that's gotten the most hits uh, on YouTube right now is actually – this is actually something I discovered in the course of researching my paper. 
it had a photomat logo at the beginning and I was like, that's weird. Why is there a photomat logo? Well, I did a little research in old newspapers and found out that UFOs are real was one of the first home video offerings that photomat was doing when they were trying to get into video rental in 1979 and 1980. Mm -hmm. So UFOs are real had just been released. And as soon as it was released, it became, it was bought by photomat as one of their uh, flagship titles that they had available. So instead of dropping off your film at the little photomat booth in the mall parking lot, you'd go there and you'd pick up two or three videos and return them a couple of days later. And so again, this was a cheap movie to pick up. It obviously had people's interest in 79 and 80. And so not only could you see it on UHF, you could also get it at your local photomat rental uh, place, which again was just something that passed me by. I was not old enough to, we didn't have a VCR until like 1984, 1985. So mm. this was not something, see, see what I mean? Like even in this very early days when video rental was not a big thing, they realized that this kind of topic would be really, really interesting to people who had VH, who had VCRs in their homes at this point. Do you recall any of these trickling down to be like shown in classrooms at schools or something like, cause I swear I saw a couple of these when I was in high school or when I was in, you know, junior high or something like that. I, I could be wrong. We, we <laughs> you know? had a couple of like substitute teachers who would put on. Yeah. That was like, like Oh great. Subs here. Like and then this. you, you know, the, the best moment of the day was when that <laughs> movie projector would come rolling into the classroom, Absolutely. you know, because you knew you were going to get an hour's worth of sleep or something. <laughs> yeah, Unless exactly. you were me who was actually could... watching this stuff. You're like, Oh my God, this is so cool. You know, <laughs> <laughs> But that's the same aesthetic, isn't it? It's that film strip aesthetic where it's kind of, everything's kind of warped and kind of like yeah. cheap and kind of, but that's, that's exactly, exactly it like how could media get to you in the late 70s well radio television newspapers books magazines that was basically all we had so and when it comes to like motion sort of media like films film strips that kind of thing they all had that same kind of aesthetic to them like stuff on tv was shot on videotape but stuff that was on film had that grainy granular quality to it and so i can see why like one of these UFO documentaries might re remind you of like a film strip or an educational film because they were all very much made in the same kind of like, again, cheap, not cinematic type uh, uh, film stock. Well, you've got a piece in here. Let's move on to this. This would be a good crossover point. You've got a thing in here where Generation X as media archaeologists, the joy and necessity of rediscovery. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, this is the thing. It's sort of like when you look back at kind of, again, having that sort of division line between a an analog childhood and a, 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 a yeah an analog childhood and a digital adulthood right we we are sitting here now in 2017 where like any number of hundreds of thousands of pieces of media are like available to our fingertips at any time and that's great you know and we're able to rediscover these old documentaries like this but like you mentioned earlier if you missed one of these things on your TV guide listing it wouldn't come around again for a long long time you mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to see it. And so all you'd have is those fragmentary memories of, um, you know, basically, you know, what you saw when you were seven or eight years old. When you're able to go back online 30 years later and rediscover this stuff, I think it's one of the things that's very uniquely Generation X because people who are older than us don't have the emotional connection to this kind of media. I mean, I could talk, my dad got me into a lot of this UFO stuff when I was a kid. And like, I can certainly talk to him about the stuff, but he doesn't have the same sort of like, joy of rediscovery that I have because those memories when you're young, they're so formative and they're so like close to the center of sort of that very early history of what you remember 
that like when you are of our age group and you go back and find this stuff, it unlocks all these weird, very old memories. And I think that's part of the reason why there's such an appeal um, to put this stuff online and make it available is because, you know, if you look at the YouTube comments for one of these movies, you're going to find half the people are people who are, you know, in their 40s going, oh, my God, I remember this. And the other half are these people in their 20s going, whoa, this is weird. Is this real? Like, or is this fake? Like, did somebody make this up? Because they, they don't realize that all of those, like, you know, sort of fake reconstructions of 1970s stuff, um, th- they all look that way because the actual stuff looked that weird and that uncanny. And sort of that's what I talk about a little bit later in my presentation about sort of like people love this stuff. Like, do you did you see that um, that X-Men Apocalypse um uh, promotional film that they put together that was just basically like an in search of commercial. No, I can't say that I have. No. So the X Men Apocalypse movie took place in the eighties, I guess, and uh, they had a fake commercial for this um, uh, TV show that was telling the secret history of like uh, the mutant apocalypse, right, going all the way back to ancient, um, uh, back, all the way back to ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. and uh, they basically made it look like an episode of In Search of. It's called In the Footsteps of. And instead of Nimoy, <laughs> they used George Takei as the narrator. And they didn't even credit him. You just had to listen really closely and go, oh, yeah, that's George Takei's voice. So they basically – the people who produced this little prom- promotional like trailer for the, the X-Men movie were probably in their late 30s, early 40s, loved In Search of and said, let's put a little reference to it in this promotional campaign. It's stuff like that that just – and you talked about X-Files earlier. Fox Mulder is another one of these Gen X archaeologists, basically. There's so many points in the X-Files where his love of UFOs and his sort of obsession with them manifests as him going back and looking at old film. Like, he looks at the the famous uh, uh, Bigfoot film, the... um, the Patterson Gimlin film. Yeah. Yeah. He he looks at that in Jose Chung's From Outer Space. He looks at uh, the Carl Sagan uh, Extraterrestrial Intelligence Conference from 72 in the episode where you think he shot himself. Like, Fox Mulder is a TV watcher. He's a child of that era of TV. And so he's just like any of us going back and looking at the stuff from his childhood. And remember, a big part of Fox Mulder's, like, character history was that his sister was abducted right in front of his eyes during the Watergate hearings that he was watching on TV. So it's like TV looms large in that character's sort of conception of um, sort of his obsession with UFOs. So let's move on to conclusions then. What do, yes. you, what do you pull from out of all this? Well, what I did pull out of it for my presentation was uh, taking a look at the media landscape, like I said, taking a look at the, um, uh, the sort of market as it was at that time. Like this is a very, very sort of um, – unique moment in post-war Western history. And basically, all of these factors that I've talked about in the 1970s, before deregulation, before the rise of cable, before all that stuff, you had an opportunity for people to put together these little handmade products um, that really were just very much appealing to a certain segment of the population. And I do think that there's a class aspect to this. You know, I grew up I, I would say I grew up middle class, but probably more towards the lower end of middle class. And I found in a lot of the sort of research I did for this paper is that this belief in UFOs is something – it is a folk belief. It's something that you know maybe the people, the intellectuals of a particular um, society, maybe they don't buy into it literally. But a lot of people have very strong beliefs about it, and those people – are consumers and they do buy stuff and they do consume media. And so this was a time when, you know, even with these very, very few media outlets, there was an opportunity for people to 
produce and consume these very, very unique, uh, handcrafted, bespoke sort of documentaries about UFOs. And to me, I think that's a, it's something that I don't think we're ever going to see again for the reasons we've talked about. There's too many media venues. There's, you know, too much content out there. Yes, Ancient Aliens runs in perpetuity on the History Channel. But like you said, it's the same stuff over and over again. It's not, um, it doesn't have that handcrafted feel to it. And I think that just like a lot of other media from this time period, the UFO documentaries themselves are something that, uh, uh, an aesthetic and a style we're never going to see again. There are people, but they're few and far between. The big problem is, in my opinion, everything is just so accessible and so easy to get to. It's like you're trying to say something within a sea of information. Uh, like the guy we had on a few weeks ago talking about the Montauk, uh, the Montauk Chronicles, you know, Mm -hmm. he's, he's very much doing this with the Montauk thing, but if you are an independent film producer trying to put something fresh and something different out there, you're kind of fighting, you, you know, the only, like you like ufology, like, okay, here's a great example. What ufology is now that whole, um, Peru alien mummy thing. Have you seen that going around yeah. now? Yeah. You know, where it's like, well, here's this, you know, we've got DNA test that it shows the x-ray of this alien. And then you go to the website and it's like, click here to see more, you know, you got to pay yeah. a subscriber fee. You know, and that's kind of what everything has become now, like that you, uh, that alien baby thing that was real big in Mexico a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. the UFO conference. That's what that's what you're up against. You know, now it's this world of everybody wants to sell you something or everybody wants to. There, there's some it's like a circus sideshow kind of thing. Oh, yeah. You and know? there's also the there's also the aspect that we've touched on already is that like the, back in the day, you could get a lot of eyeballs on these things. And today it's just such a sea of content that you can't sort through it. And the danger of self-publishing, whether it's books or movies, is just how do you get people to see what you've produced? Um, It's just really, really hard to make inroads. You kind of have to go to those kinds of things to show people what you're trying to do. And then you kind of get tainted by that. You know, you kind of just by being there, you kind of have that. And the other thing is, is you've got the whole History Channel Ancient Aliens thing where – God, these fireworks are driving me nuts. I don't know if you can hear them or not through the microphone. Bar- barely, yeah, barely. <laughs> it sounds like World War III is going on outside. <laughs> um, it's it's July first. Let's celebrate our independence. Well, that's not for three, three days, days early. <laughs> three days early. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's exactly what it is. But anyways, um, you've got the ancient alien effect, which. Like an ancient aliens, it's like, because you have the McDonald's Whopper, this is why I'm saying McDonald's Whopper right now, but this because you have this, this is why aliens were here some time ago as depicted on this thing right there. And then the guy's yeah. hair gets bigger as he's telling the story, <laughs> you know, yeah, and they just, they just dominate the media environment in a exactly. way that like, that like, again, like the fact that I've got a list of like a dozen of these UFO documentaries that were all produced basically independently and you know, again, all had some form of exposure. Like, you know, Ancient Aliens is the is the big monstrous sort of like, you know, late capitalist uh, sort of corporate entity that's kind of chewing up and spitting exactly. out Exactly. That's else, that's a good way know? to put it. Corporatism, corporate television is kind of is kind of engulfing it. I mean, up until yeah. up until this recent, like the History Channel, all this stuff getting into it, and then you had the rise of paranormal reality shows. You know, sci fi oh, channels. Course. 
ghost, you know, huge. ghost hunters when it first started to what it is now. It's like it, then it became this thing where it's like, well, these paranormal shows are really cheap to make, so um, we need to get as many of these out there as we can. We'll get some people to drive around in a van and they'll go investigate this, and then we can tweak it a little bit to make it actually look like something is happening. And yeah. you know, the whole thing just kind of went south for the most part. You know, I, so, I guess the the one equivalent I would say today that that the, the the places where you can find really good sort of like again maybe not solely UFO but let's say paranormal documentaries is like there are still a lot of these independent ones produced but they like I was saying earlier they're self produced they're self promoted um, Amazon Prime Video has a, a channel called Gaia that has like a mix of like again like you know sort of like the the paranormal stuff but also like you know. Um, you know, spirituality, like alternate spirituality mm-hmm. and, and everything like that. And again, these are all very, very cheaply produced. You wouldn't be able to find them really anywhere else. And, and again, like Amazon's been a real godsend for people to do self-publishing uh, for books. I think it's also going to be a good venue for people to find stuff that interests yeah, their think, niche uh, interests. I agree with you there. I think that these these independent video on demand networks like Netflix, you find some stuff on there as well. Sure. There's yeah. a gentleman we had on the show by the name of Seth Breedlove, and he's done a few documentaries about Bigfoot and he's kind of a self-produced, put his own stuff out there and he tries very hard to take a fresh take on the stuff. There are people out there doing this. It's just a matter of where you're going to go to find it and consume it. Yeah. And like you said, I think it's going to pop up on things like Netflix and Amazon, or you're going to see like these independent television show apps and things like that, like through Roku and things that, you, yeah, you know, you, you, it's out there, but you got to dig for it. But I think the, the I guess the the forty and dumbing down, thanks to the History Channel and paranormal reality shows, is kind of the problem that you're facing. Um, I did want to touch on one small thing though, and just to pass on though, like with Stranger Things, you're kind of seeing you're you're beginning to see little things that pay homage to things that have come before. Like Stranger Things is very much based on the Montauk Chronicles. Oh, sure. It's also very yeah. 80s. So it's got that feel to this kind of stuff in it. You I know? can't tell you how many people came up to me at the conference and mentioned Stranger Things. If there was if there was one piece of media that wasn't on people's lips as much as Arrival, it was Stranger Things. And I think three separate people came up to me afterwards and asked me about it. And I kind of did the same. I, I said the same things you were talking about. It's like, yeah, they originally were going to set it in Montauk and it would have had all this like elements of the of that sort of myth and everything else. And I was like, you know, it would have been really cool if they had done that. I also brought up Super 8 by J.J. Abrams. Exactly. Which is, That's the next one direction I was going in. Yeah. Such an obvious sort of like, you know, Spielberg homage again. But like, you know, again, like there were a lot of movies like that in the 80s. I think, again, the kids who came of age at this time period – I remember movies like Explorers, Flight of the yeah, Navigator. Yeah, um, yeah. There are a lot of like – again, if you grew up with this kind of stuff believing that aliens were going to contact or otherwise like come down to Earth, the movies that appealed to like the preteens in the 80s would have obviously had the same kind of like themes to them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of – that you know, again, if, if you were born in like the early 70s, mid-70s like me, mm-hmm. like you were 10 or 11 when Explorers came out, you're like, oh man, that's exactly – you know, I want to get a mysterious message from outer space and put together my own spaceship. Like that's, you know, it it makes total sense. And I think that Stranger Things obviously is very, very obviously tapping into people who are in their 40s who are looking back on the 80s again. But I think also the fact that it's become a big hit with people who are younger hits that same thing I was talking about earlier. I think that there is a fascination even among millennials for the stuff from this period because it is so different from what they've been kind of force fed. Like. If you showed somebody who is a big fan of ancient aliens who's in their 20s, if you showed them UFOs are real, I, I, I this is maybe just me acting like a really old man, but like I think they'd really dig it because it is so like 
unlike anything that they've seen and it's so authentic and so gritty and sort of like that film stock and everything else like I think that they would have a really positive reaction to it but they'd also be a little freaked out by it because it's not the typical fare that you get on cable in 2017 yeah exactly but it's also again it's 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 a piece of history this yeah. is this is what it was back then, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So is there anything that we didn't get a chance to talk about that you do want to cover or anything like that? Or have we pretty much touched everything? No, I, I think that's it. I think the, the other the only other thing I was going to mention sort of like as parallel to this is like, you know, there, there's something about going back and kind of visiting media from your childhood that, again, triggers that uncanny response. I mean, I don't know if you've done an episode yet on um, – like uh, internet creepypasta, but like there's a um, wanted to, but I haven't really been able to come up with a way that we could, to, to how we could tackle it. Are you volunteering yeah. for the job? <laughs> <laughs> Put that on the list after the Jacques Vallée diaries. Yeah. But like, you, you know, Candle Cove is like a really famous one. It's about this kid's show that people are talking about on an online forum where they kind of half remember it. And they kind of, it, it does the story kind of builds as kind of this series of posts and, and uh, the, it's a it's a creepy kid show from the 70s. And mm-hmm. like every time they unveil a new memory of it, it gets creepier and creepier. Like I, I think that that's an authentic experience. A lot of us, again, have well, had it's the Slenderman effect. It really no, is. And it's then sort of, uh, it's, there's it's the uh, five days at Freddy's. What was the pizza place where they had five, it's five nights in Freddy's? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there's that one. There's there's all these different ones out there that kind of develop a life of their own and move on. They're kind yeah. of like modern folklore, urban legends kind of thing. Exactly. And what they are is they they all are stories from your youth. Like I, I don't know about you, but like in grade school and junior high, like there were always urban legends like floating around the school. Like you know. Uh, I can't think of any right now. Well, every like, state has a melon head legend. Every state has yeah. the drive up to the railroad tracks and put your car in neutral and yep, put yep, baby yep. powder on the back of your car. And then the babies, it's always like a school bus. Little kids was killed here or yep. every, every place has that legend. Um, there's another one and it involves peanut butter and a dog, but I won't go into that one. There's <laughs> all the Halloween <laughs> ones were always great. Like how, how are the people who are killing people with like, you know, razors and apples going to do it this year? You know what I yeah. mean? Like, so like, you know, that's something again, before the internet, all this stuff passed between people orally yeah. and, you know, uh, and they mutate in that telling. It's like a big game of telephone. Yep. So like, it, that's I, I think that's one of the things that that this generation that's come of age with the internet is never going to get to experience, which is this idea of uh, folklore that's mediated orally, not through digital media. And well, I think that I disagree. You know, I think it's just the medium always seems to morph in mm-hmm. relation to where it's at. I just think that we haven't quite seen it reach its fruition yet. Where now you're seeing it happen as fake news. You know, now that's the kind of thing yeah. that you're seeing happen, but it's happening in a different form. And we're not, you know, 10 years from now, we're going to be able to look back and go, oh, yeah, that's how it happened then. It's kind of hard to see when it's happening right in front of your face. That's a great point. That is a really so good point. I think yeah. it's still going to happen. I think it, it is happening now with the Slender Man and, five, you know, the Freddy's thing. And it is happening that way, you know. And, and a, lot of just, the, a lot of these stories end up getting remixed and sort of like changed maybe not unconsciously, but consciously, you know what I mean? Like yeah. take an aspect from something, give it a little bit of a spin and retell it. And it, it is kind of like, like I said, like all these movies from the seventies, a lot of them were just remixes and sort of chopped and screwed sort of like versions of earlier films. And like, that's what keeps the story alive and vital is like changing it slightly and giving it a new spin that makes it interesting to a new audience. And I think you're right. I think any of these sort of like internet era um, urban legends 
they they get broader and sort of like more interesting think, in the more times they're retold. I think ten know? years from now you're going to see another variation of the Slenderman story. You know, you're going to yeah. see it's just that it hasn't happened yet because this you were seeing another evolution of the birth of these legends, and you have to give them time to run their course and do what they're going to do in relation to the medium that they're told in. And especially yeah. when they break out into the real world, like that case in Wisconsin with those girls, exactly. you know, like and, you know, you're seeing that it with the, killer, a the creepy aspect. clown epidemic, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's wow. still happening. It's just happening. It's an, it's going through its evolutionary phase, but you also got to consider technology is moving so fast. Communication, things are yeah. evolving so quickly. You know, yeah, I mean, um, a creepypasta that takes place on YouTube might look really, really old and hokey in five years. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, exactly. So whatever the medium is, then the stories will evolve and change and, and move along with whatever the medium is at the time. And my kids are going to be, you know, listening to their kids or coming across these stories going, oh, yeah, we had that. You know, it was blah, blah, blah or you know, yeah. something like that. Or the stories are just going to they're going to morph in some way, shape or form. I so, think we can no. probably get a good hour out of um, where, like creepypasta, where it came from, what its antecedents were, and where it's going. I think I think that could be doable for sure. Oh yeah, I'd love <laughs> to do it. That's 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 actually the kind of directions we would like this show to go into. But so often yeah. it's hard to it's hard to nail down how we're going to do it. Like yeah, in a few yeah. weeks, I'm doing a show about the whole the the legend of Polybius. I've been putting the show together for like two years oh, and researching yeah. it, and I finally got somebody that's going to come along and help me get it going here. And, that's fantastic. Uh, I'm I'm going to be definitely tuning in for that one because yeah, that story is great. It's a it's a it's a really cool story. But what's funny is when you really really dig into it, it's not so much it's the myth of the video game. It's the myth that well these people were having heart attacks and these things were happening. But at that time frame, they're actually I'm going to brush up on it. We're going to go over it again when we do the show. But there actually were people that were having heart attacks and things were happening. But it wasn't while playing a Polybius video game. <laughs> But there were people that were were having heart attacks and seizures and stuff like that. It, whether or not it was actually caused by the video game here nor there, maybe it was, maybe yeah. it wasn't. But those legends kind of got translated into, oh, yeah, they yes. were playing this game Polybius and they had a heart attack or this happened or that happened. You know, oh, yeah. because this is, you know, again, this is something else I want to touch on when that happens, too, is the 80s were when the video game, when video games first started happening, there was no, you had Atari, you had you know, in television, video games at the arcade weren't the same as what you had at home. Yes. And video yes. games had a very, um, the media, everybody was very much against video games. There was oh, laws yeah. going into effect to try to keep people from playing video games during school hours. And yeah. there was a very negative connotation to them. So it was a very, like, you're seeing it happen now by going to Dave and Buster's, but the days of going to a video arcade are gone because somebody can sit down with their PS4 and play a game that's really yeah. good, you know? And you're right. Like we, we actually this is an opportunity for me to plug. We are the mutants, but we recently had uh, our editor in chief. Kelly you Roberts. It good. <laughs> good. <laughs> our editor in chief, Kelly Roberts, recently did a look at uh, a training film for the. Um, oh Christ! I'm forgetting the name of the Spaceland Arcades or something like that on the West Coast, and and sort of like it gives you a real snapshot in 1981 of like you know like what were people afraid of like. I, I talked about it with my other editors and like some of them had parents who didn't want them to go down to the arcade because it was where the rough kids hung out mm -hmm. and they were older and they smoked and they maybe they gambled on the video games they were playing like the video game arcade was a dangerous place you know like it was a place that 
parents and authorities didn't know how to police quite yet in the early 80s it was well, like it was, a, all, it was just very so it was, fire, yeah know? it was a different it was like it was like a bar kind of thing did it parents didn't know how to what is this why are all these kids gathering here what's things are bad are going to happen it was just there was such a stigma to it yeah. you know it was just it was just something that was very much frowned upon and you hear urban legends tapping back to what we're talking about. You would hear yeah. all these things like of people getting beat up at arcades and, and, you know, it was just like that, you know, you don't, don't go there because bad things are going to happen. And I don't really yeah. have a lot of bad memories of hanging out at arcades except for walking in, walking out going, wow, I just blew $5 and quarters, you know. <laughs> Ultimately, that is that is the danger of the arcade is it's going to take your money. Exactly. So. And back then it was um, like, don't stare, don't sit too close to the television set, blah, 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 blah. Now, years later, what am I doing? I'm sitting a foot away from two video monitors in front of me. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah no, <laughs> people yeah. go to work and do this every day, you know. It's just one of those things, so. But uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm, uh, before I let you go, uh, this is your chance to promote wherever you are, what you do, where people can find you. You know, anything you want to talk about, go right ahead. Excellent. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Museum Michael. That's all one word. Uh, WeAreTheMutants.com is the name of the website that I am an editor for. And uh, we basically look at the lost and forgotten culture of the uh, Cold War period, basically anything from the you know, end of the end of World War II to the fall of the Berlin Wall, but we concentrate mostly on the 70s and 80s, I'd say, and uh, we cover everything from music to movies to the occult and paranormal um, to you know, sort of like rare, sort of uh, again forgotten pieces of art. Um, we've recently done some features on like TV commercials from the 1980s. Like we cover basically everything. We try to cover a lot of this nostalgia stuff, but from a very so from a more critical perspective. Uh, so that's wearethemutants.com, and that's also available on Twitter at wearethemutants, all one word. Have you ever considered doing a book? Well, there is one thing about this paper that's got me interested in trying to kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 the feedback I got at the conference was that this could be a, a peer-reviewed paper. So that's what I'm looking into at the moment. Um, I do have an idea for a book that has to do with UFOs in the media, but it's in its very early stages, and I still have to kind of work out what that might look for a pitch. But um, both of those projects are kind of on my back burner. I've got to get my degree done. That's like my priority right now. <laughs> and once I do that and get a good museum job somewhere, uh, maybe I can think about putting together some of the ideas I have into that book. It's always a blast to talk to you. You're, you're Great, very you. well educated and, and very well spoken in regards to this stuff. The only problem I had I was worried about before the show is, is how are we going to handle this? Because you basically were like, boom, here's a whole bunch of information. Let's do this. And I'm like, <laughs> where the hell do we start? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it's uh, been a lot of fun talking to you. And thank you very much for coming on here. And I have not got a doubt in my head that I'll be talking to you again fairly soon. Uh, same here, and I am very excited to come back eventually, but uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate oh, no it. No problem. Take care, man. All right. You are seeing an unidentified flying object. It is not a hoax. It is real. The film was taken by Leland Hansen while filming Catalina Island from a helicopter. Mr. Hansen was a professional photographer working for the United States Navy. This film has been examined by photographic experts. Photographic analysis reveals that this circular UFO was about 30 feet in diameter and was traveling between 130 and 170 miles per hour. It has no wings, no tail section, and no visible means of propulsion. 
This sighting is only one of the many pieces of evidence the producers of this film will present verifying that some UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft. Want to get in contact with the show or listen to back episodes? It's easy. Go to www.projectarchivist.com. On the right side of the page, you'll find links to our archives, as well as links on how to get onto our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. If you want to leave a voicemail for us, it's 734-681-0459. Yes, we do listen to all of them. Or if you want to talk to Lobo directly, you can call 203-212-9975. Yes, that will in fact put you in touch with his cell phone. If he's available, he will take your call and talk to you. If you're just looking to send us an email, you can do that at projectarchivist at gmail.com. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes under the podcast section, or you can stream us right to your phone with the Stitcher Android app for free. Rising from the depths of a state called Michigan... Two inebriated dorks prepare their plan for intergalactic domination. Mixing their extensive knowledge of geek culture with their insatiable thirst for alcohol, these two man-children bring you a show like you've never heard before. They will tell you tales from faraway lands and have you questioning their taste in beer. But make no mistake, friend... For the best coverage of your favorite comics, films, and TV shows, there's no better source for you to get your fix. So listen up, strap in, and prepare yourself as Jake and Tom conquer the world. We all have questions. What happens after we die? Is Bigfoot real? Is my government hiding aliens from us? We all have stories. Join experienced paranormal investigators JP Doyle. They need to make this where there's a hole on the top for your penis. John Gonzalez. It's the same, but my ass is brown. And Roman Avia. That's some underage pictures of me. (laughs) (laughs) While we talk all things paranormal with just a pinch of humor, find our show. The Just Paranormal Podcast on all major podcast outlets. And be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on all of our latest episodes. And that is the show for the week. I'm going to give this to the Patreon people first, and everybody else is going to eventually get it. So whenever you guys got it, sorry, but I have to take care of our Patreon people first. If you're not a Patreon and would like to become a Patreon, I do try to put stuff up there as often as I can. Sometimes I put stuff up there just for the Patreons, and sometimes I put stuff up there way ahead of everybody else for them to hear it. Uh, You can go to Patreon.com, do a search for Project Archivist, and you'll find us. And if you want to toss a couple of books at us, anything is fine. We don't really care how much people toss at us. I do a really bad job of promoting our Patreon because, again, we're not doing this for money. That's just not what drives us. Having said that, the people who do donate to the show, we really do appreciate it. It helps a lot. And thank you very, very much. Uh, Also, as you guys are listening to this, about, I'd say, I don't know, maybe an hour after I got done recording that with Michael, I lost my internet and haven't had internet for about a week. So thus adding to the delay of getting this episode posted. 
It is now July 6th, so I've been without internet for almost a week now, and having just gotten it back, I'm very, very happy. Also saying that we are halfway through the year, and we are now booking into August, and I'm trying to slow the train down a little bit because when we get to a point where we book this many guests, things start to get weird and things start to get wanky, especially since it's summertime and both Lobo and myself has families. Um has families? Sure, I'll stick with that. Lobo has lots of little younglings, and they try to go out and do family-oriented stuff, so there's going to be episodes where he's not here, and there's going to be episodes when I'm not here. So I don't know how the release schedule is going to go for the rest of summer. I'm sure it won't be that big of a deal, but we're going to skip, maybe miss a show here and there, or I'll do something solo, or Lobo's going to do something solo. I don't know. You people don't seem to care, but I still feel a need to let you guys know. And I think that's it. That's the show. And we'll see everybody again really soon. Again, thank you very much, Patreons. We really, really do appreciate it. And this is Rojan. Peace out from the D.
But with this stuff, man, I was scared because it's intergalactical and they could control your mind. They could put things up your butt. 